The crew's final grim months remain a mystery. For Willoughby, racked by hunger, stopped recording daily entries in his ship's log. While Willoughby and his men froze to death, Richard Chancellor had fared rather better. Dropping anchor in the White Sea, close to present-day Archangel, he abandoned ship and trudged his way overland to Moscow. At first he was disappointed in what he found, but he soon changed his tune when confronted with the barbaric splendour of Ivan the Terrible's court. After lengthy negotiations, the Emperor sent the English commander back to England with a letter conferring trading privileges upon a group of merchants in London. In doing so, he had unwittingly laid the foundations of the Muscovy Company, a precursor to the East India Company. Of the three ships that set sail for the Spice Islands, not one achieved its goal of locating the elusive Northeast Passage. The men who sailed north to escape the tropical diseases of the Indian Ocean little thought they would perish in the sub-zero waters of the Arctic. It would take another 400 years and a nuclear-powered submarine before the northern route to the Pacific would finally be conquered. While London's merchants anxiously awaited news of their historic first voyage to the Spice Islands, many people in the country were left wondering what all the fuss was about. Nutmeg, after all, made for an unpromising luxury. Dry, wrinkled, and not much bigger than a garden pea, it scarcely had the same appeal as a golden ducket or finely hewn sapphire. The doubters were soon to learn that it was of potentially far greater value. London's leading doctors of physic made increasingly extravagant claims as to the efficacy of nutmeg, holding it to cure everything from the plague to a life-threatening strain of dysentery known as the bloody flux, both of which were regular visitors to the capital. Other authorities began to claim that nutmeg was a powerful aphrodisiac. The licentious Charles Sackville, 6th Earl of Dorset, jested that Julius Caesar's libido was so low that even if Cleopatra had used nutmeg, mace and ginger upon her Roman swinger, she would have failed to stir his loins. Beneath all the quackery, however, there lurked a grain of truth, particularly in the claims that it was a powerful preservative. Perishables had traditionally been conserved by salting, drying or smoking, none of which suppressed the foul taste of rank meat. A sprinkling of nutmeg over the viands not only disguised the stench, it also helped stay the natural process of rotting by dramatically slowing the rate of oxidation. In the two centuries that followed Marco Polo's return from China, Spices had become so popular that demand had long since outstripped supply. Venice's merchants were sufficiently adept at the art of money-making to know that a shortage of supply meant that prices could be kept high. But in the closing days of 1511, a startling and wholly unwelcome piece of news reached the Venetian merchants. A small flotilla of Portuguese ships had just arrived in the Spice Islands, and acquired a full lading of spices. After more than four centuries, the Venetian monopoly had been broken. The spice race could now begin. The Portuguese had made spectacular progress in their quest to find a sea route to the east. 
Just 40 years after their first tentative crossing of the equator in 1471, they had successfully sailed to the Spice Islands of the East Indies and returned with their ships crammed with pepper, nutmeg and cloves. The other countries of Europe had got off to a faltering start in the spice race. Although Columbus went to great lengths to persuade the King and Queen of Spain that he had found the East Indies, he had, of course, discovered America. The Venetian explorer, John Cabot, also believed that the quickest way to the East Indies was to sail west. Despite his failure to bring home a single nutmeg, his voyages aroused considerable interest in the ports of Spain and Portugal. One man in particular, Ferdinand Magellan, was keen to know more. In 1518, King Charles V of Spain realised that Magellan offered him the best chance of challenging the seemingly indomitable position of the Portuguese, and placed him in charge of a fleet of ships which were to sail southwards down the coast of Brazil, find a passage through to the Pacific Ocean, then sail west until they reached the islands of Banda. Magellan's voyage began well. He revittled in the Canary Islands, crossed the equator, and reached the South American coastline three months later. A year after leaving Tenerife, Magellan's ship nudged through the straits that now bear his name and entered the warm waters of the Pacific. It was now simply a question of following the spice-filled breezes all the way to the East Indies. Unfortunately, it was not so simple. Magellan, like most explorers of his day, had no idea of the massive distances involved, and after more than three months at sea with no sight of land, his men began to starve. Despite the terrible hardship, the ships limped on until they reached the Philippines, where the men learned that they were nearing their goal. But Magellan was destined not to see the Spice Islands, for he made the mistake of involving himself in a local power struggle, and during the fighting was struck down and killed. So many men had died that a decision was taken to abandon one of the ships. The remaining vessels then sailed for the most northerly of the Spice Islands, sighting the clove-covered cone of Tidore's volcano in the first week of November, 1521. Laden with 26 tonnes of cloves, a cargo of nutmeg and sackloads of cinnamon and mace, what was left of the expedition finally left the Spice Islands in that winter. The Trinidad got no farther than the harbour. Rotten, leaking and hopelessly overloaded, she needed extensive repairs before making the return journey. With a tearful farewell, the crew of the Victoria set sail alone and nine months later reached Seville. Although her crew were half dead and Magellan was long since buried, King Charles V was overjoyed and one of his first actions was to honour the captain with a coat of arms. Its design included three nutmegs, two sticks of cinnamon and twelve cloves. Although the failure of Sir Hugh Willoughby's Arctic expedition brought to an abrupt end England's search for a northeast passage, it did little to dampen the enthusiasm for sailing to the Spice Islands. Drake's expedition of 1577 was backed by Queen Elizabeth I, and its ostensible object was to conclude trade treaties with the people of the South Pacific. The five ships under Drake's command, none of which exceeded the length of two London buses, used Magellan's route as their blueprint and revittled in many of the same bays and harbours, 
Drake had intended to drop anchor at the volcanic island of Tidore, but as he edged his ship through the treacherous shallows, a canoe drew alongside, carrying a viceroy from the neighbouring island of Ternate. Arguing that Tidore was all but controlled by the hated Portuguese, he begged the English commander to change his course. Drake consented, and, selecting a fine velvet cloak from his cabin, asked that it might be presented to the king with the message that he had come to buy spices. The messenger promptly returned with the news that the king would sequester the commodities and traffic of his whole island and reserve it to the intercourse of our nation. Drake arrived back in England to a hero's welcome. Not only was his vessel, renamed the Golden Hind, laden with fragrant spices, she was also very richly fraught with gold, silver, pearls and precious stones, most of which had been pillaged from Spanish and Portuguese vessels. Men and women turned out in force to watch the arrival of the ship in Plymouth, and Queen Elizabeth herself came aboard the vessel at Deptford and conferred a knighthood on her gallant commander. Within days of his return, songs, sonnets, odes and poems were being composed in honour of an historic voyage. Drake's triumphant return caused great excitement among the merchants of London, and they began to cast around for a suitable candidate to open trading links with the East Indies. Drake himself was the obvious choice, but he had set his sights on some old-fashioned piracy, and the merchants were forced to look elsewhere for a commander. Showing the singular lack of foresight that they had manifested when choosing Sir Hugh Willoughby for their Arctic adventure, they now entrusted command to a Nottinghamshire landowner called Edward Fenton, a headstrong man with little experience of seamanship. He was a strange choice.